Good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Adam, if I haven't met you, and I'm one of the elders here, and it is an honor and a privilege to preach God's Word this morning. Today, as Dodd said, we continue our sermon series in the book of Nehemiah by looking at the confession of the Israelites. And we we will see today that God is righteous in forgiving the heartfelt confession of his people. Have you ever been in a fractured relationship where you were repeatedly mistreated and sinned against and eventually just cast aside and abandoned? Maybe it was with a good friend. Or maybe it was with, even worse, a parent or a child. Maybe it was with a sibling or even a spouse. And then, when you repeatedly made the painful effort to forgive them and to pursue them in hopes of reconciling the relationship, they just blew you off and disregarded you. How long did it take before the pain was just too much and you gave up and tried to move on with your life? See, thankfully, our God doesn't lose heart or give up on the people that he loves. For centuries, God had been continually pursuing his people who were living in sin. In his pursuit of them, he sent prophets to call them to repentance. But the people's hearts were so hard that they ignored the prophets and even sometimes killed them. See, Israel was the one lost sheep in the parable that God would not give up on and that he kept pursuing. In the time of Nehemiah, Israel had been in exile due to their sin after continuing to ignore the pursuit of their patient and long-suffering God. By God's grace, they had made their way back They'd rebuilt the temple, they'd rebuilt the city walls and the gates, but the people, the people needed to be rebuilt. I was reminded the other day of a relevant quote from the Lord of the Rings, where Aragorn says, men are better than gates. See, Nehemiah has led the Israelites in this incredible work of rebuilding the city walls and the gates, but if the people aren't rebuilt, all of that will mean nothing. Now, since this is a sermon on confession, I should confess that I was reminded of this quote by Dodds. See, I've actually never seen The Lord of the Rings. Um, None of the movies, haven't read the books. I actually did, I did start to watch the first movie. It was about 20 years ago when it came out. I went over to some friend's apartment and it's 10, maybe 15 minutes in and I fell asleep. And I slept through the entire movie, which is what, two and a half hours? I don't know, it was a long long nap. Um, So I actually had to Google how to pronounce Aragorn, and it's a big debate online, interestingly. Um, But like anything, when you make a confession, you're at risk of being judged, if you're transparent, right? So if you're one of the people who's judging me right now for never having watched watched Lord of the Rings, you should not nod, you should keep it to yourself, right? Because we want to be a community where we can confess things and not be judged, right? So in today's passage, we see what God's heart has been longing for as he's continued to be patient with and pursue his people, they finally are responding to God as they should. In Nehemiah 9, we see the heartfelt confession of a nation who has been lost in sin, and we see them crying out to God and asking him to forgive them. 
So for today's sermon, we'll look at three things. First, we'll look at what prompted Israel's confession. Then we'll look at insights from Israel's confession. And then third, we'll look at God's response to confession. So first, let's look at what prompted Israel's confession. In case some of you are jumping into the middle of this sermon series, I want to provide you some brief background and context of where we're at in Nehemiah chapter 9. The Israelites have gone into exile at the hands of the Babylonians. And then Persia conquers Babylon, and the Jews find themselves under the rule of Persian King Cyrus. Now God stirs in the heart of King Cyrus and allows the Jews to return back to Jerusalem. At this point, under Ezra's oversight, they have rebuilt the temple, and Nehemiah has been leading the people in rebuilding the city walls. Many have just returned to Jerusalem. But in spite of all these developments, the people are still dealing with disappointments. See, the, the entire life that they've known has been one of exile and oppression. As they return to Jerusalem with anticipation, the rebuilt temple actually pales in comparison to Solomon's temple, and their houses remain in ruins. While there is certainly reason for hope, many of the people are likely discouraged, frustrated, perhaps even angry or bitter with God, And the question is is this, how could God have allowed them to suffer so deeply and for so long? Would they ever know the freedom that they longed for? See, as Dodds noted last week, the people have just celebrated the Feast of Booths, during which they read through extended portions of the law for eight days. Now, this reading culminated in Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30. This passage recounts Moses' final time with his people as they're preparing to enter the promised land. It outlines blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, the renewal of a covenant, and preparation for them to be forgiven and restored whenever they fell into sin. And so as they heard the reading of Deuteronomy, particularly when they heard the covenant curses, they were convicted. And I suspect it reframed their perspective on their entire life experience. See, this may may have been the first time that any of these people had heard from God's word, had heard it read publicly. What had seemed to be an unjust suffering was now starting to make sense. See, their ancestors had sadly chosen disobedience, and they had experienced the exact covenant curses that God had foretold in Exodus 28 hundreds of years earlier. God had been faithful to the terms of the covenant, and he had punished their disobedience exactly as he had forewarned. So suffering had characterized their life, but it was not due to the Lord forgetting them. Rather, this was the Lord's doing. It was a just consequence for their great sin and for the sin of their ancestors. So the truth is that that their anger with God was misplaced. Their difficult life, which they thought was unfair, a life filled with pain and suffering, it was actually due to their sins and the sins of their ancestors. So I think it's worth asking for some of us just to step back and re-examine our own stories. Are there places where you are discouraged or frustrated 
do you find yourself bitter or angry with God? See, we can suffer for many reasons. We can suffer due to the sin of others, or we may suffer just due to living in a fallen world that is marred by sin. But sometimes, sometimes we may be suffering due to our own sin. It could be due to our family's sin. So if you're angry with God, be honest about that. Confess that to him, but also take some time to reflect. Might your suffering be directly tied to specific sins? Maybe like Israel, you too have sin to confess, ask forgiveness for, and repent from, to turn away from. So now that hopefully we understand better what prompted Israel's confession, let's turn to Nehemiah 9 and look for some insights from Israel's confession. So this confession is prepared and led by the Levites, and it basically covers the entirety of the Old Testament. It did take Dodds a while to read it, but it is a very abbreviated version of the Old Testament in a sense. So if you're not very familiar with the Bible, I do encourage you to go back and read through Nehemiah 9. Read through it carefully. It will give you a good picture of the overarching story of the Old Testament. We could honestly do an entire sermon series just out of this chapter. And so I will not go through every detail that Israel confesses. We just don't have time for that this morning. Rather, what we'll do is we'll look at four particular aspects of Israel's confession. We'll look at their return with heartfelt confession. We'll look at their recollection of God's goodness. We'll look at their recognition of their sin. And then we'll look at their restoration through God's mercy. So first, let's look at their return with heartfelt confession. Israel has realized that their story went back much further than their birth or even their parents' birth. See, it actually goes all the way back to creation itself and to God's covenant with Abraham. They recognize that their suffering is a direct result of their sins and their father's sins, and it prompts them to assemble for a time of public heartfelt confession. See, they have returned to Jerusalem, but now they're returning to God. But it was more than just a time of confession. Just as Moses had led the people in a covenant renewal ceremony as they prepared to enter the promised land, and then as Joshua led the people in another covenant renewal ceremony as they took hold of the land, here we see the Levites lead the people in another covenant renewal ceremony as they return to the promised land. Now, the first five verses of our passage set the stage while the remainder of the chapter captures their corporate confession. So let's look at verse 1. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled. Now, we see from the previous chapter that this month was the seventh month And the Feast of Booze had just been celebrated from the 15th to the 22nd of this month. And the 23rd is another holiday, which basically marks the end of a cycle of Torah reading. So the people would finish reading Deuteronomy and then start at the beginning of Genesis. And so this, the 24th day of the month, is the first available day for them to gather and to confess their sin, which has been so clearly revealed to them in the last nine days, hearing from God's word. So they waste no time in gathering together for confession. 
I think the urgency of their confession and their impromptu assembly shows that this is a sincere, heartfelt confession. It's not a mere formality. It's a result of deep conviction and a deep desire to reconcile with God. Continuing in verse 1, it says, The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So you're likely familiar with fasting, which is often associated with mourning in the scriptures. But what is sackcloth and why earth on their heads? Well, sackcloth was a material that was very uncomfortable. And so when they wore sackcloth, it reminded them of the discomfort in their hearts. And earth, well, if you recall, the Bible says that man, was, man came from dust and will return to dust. And so in a sense, putting earth on your head reminded the people that they were deserving of death for their sin. And so again, I think these details demonstrate that their posture is certainly one of heartfelt confession. Continuing in verse 2, it says, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So why did they separate themselves from foreigners? Well, it may have been just to keep themselves faithful to God. See, throughout Israel's history, their hearts had often been drawn away by the gods and the idols of the nations around them. And on this very day, later in chapter 10, we'll see they make a specific oath to not give their children into marriage with the nations who did not worship God. But more likely, or at least additionally, this was just appropriate for the occasion. See, back in Deuteronomy, God had specifically instructed the Israelites to welcome the sojourner and the outsider as they celebrated the Feast of Booze. So likely many people had been amongst them during this time. And yet, this ceremony was different. This was a covenant renewal ceremony between God and his people. So it's worth asking, what is the place of the seeker or the non-Christian here at Sojourn? Well, if that's you, we're glad you're here. We eagerly welcome you into the life of our church. We welcome you here on Sunday mornings, and we'd love it if you joined a neighborhood parish where we spend time together throughout the week. We want you to come to know that God is good, and you can trust your life to him. But some things we do might seem strange, and they're specifically for followers of Jesus. For example, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're remembering our covenant. In a sense, we're renewing our covenant with God. So continuing on in verse 2 and 3, we see that it says the Israelites confessed their sins or made confession. So what exactly is confession? We've been talking about it a lot. What is confession? Well, confession means to agree fully or to acknowledge. It's basically believing and saying the same thing about something as God, particularly about who we are and about who God is. The Hebrew word that is used for confess in these verses is yadah. And yadah is sometimes translated as confess, but interestingly, more often, it's translated as to praise or to give thanks. So yadah literally means to hold out the hand. And so we can hold out our hands in confession, and we can also hold out our, our hands in praise and worship. So both of these are involved in their confession. We see them confessing God's goodness and their sinfulness. And we actually see much more time 
is spent confessing God's goodness. As D.A. Carson summarizes this confession, Israel is thinking, in light of God's profound goodness, how could we be so wicked? So let's examine their recollection of God's goodness. The Israelites praise God for who he is and for what he has done. We see Israel confess God's power, grace, mercy, patience, and love. They confess his guidance, provision, and faithfulness to his promises. He did not withhold from them or depart from them. He is great, mighty, awesome, long-suffering, generous, and righteous. He is their sustainer and deliverer. He warned them and did not make an end of them or forsake them. And throughout their history, God has repeatedly forgiven their heartfelt confession. See, Israel recognized God as glorious, worthy of all blessing and praise. So it's worth asking, how does our view of God relate to our sin? See, behind almost certainly all of our sins is one of three things. It's either a misunderstanding of God's character. It could be a failure to believe certain truths about God or a failure to trust in his goodness and his promises. So when you're convicted of sin, yes, it's good to confess, but don't stop at confessing what you've done or what you've failed to do. I encourage you to dig deeper. Is your understanding of God informed by the Bible? What lies about God might you be believing? Where are you failing to trust God's goodness? As you see God for who he is and you trust him, your appetite for sin will go away. So in summary, throughout Israel's turbulent history, from creation until now, God has been nothing but good to Israel. Their sin appears more wicked and shameful in light of God's goodness. So let's look briefly at Israel's recognition of their sin. See, in verse 2, it said that they separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And we see the bulk of their confession is actually for the sins of their ancestors. We see they and them language littered throughout verses 6 through 31 as they confess the sins of their ancestors. And then we see this hard transition from verse 32 to 37 with we and us language where they confess their own sins. And interestingly, rather than shifting their blame from God to their ancestors, they instead associate themselves with the sins of their fathers as if it were their own sin. So while more time is given to confessing God's goodness, the Israelites are brutally honest in their assessment of their sin. They confess that their ancestors have ignored and forgotten God's wondrous works. They've not kept the covenant and they failed to pay attention to God's commandments and warnings. They've acted presumptuously and wickedly. They've stiffened their neck, rebelled, refused to obey, and committed idolatry and great blasphemies. They confess that they themselves have acted wickedly 
They've not kept God's law. They've not paid attention to his commandments or his warnings. And they have not served God or turned from their wicked works. See, they have not just broken God's rules, they've broken God's heart. In summary, they don't go into unnecessary detail, but the language that they use aligns with the repulsiveness of their sin. So we also should not polish up our wickedness when confessing. Whether we're confessing to God or whether we're confessing to a trusted brother or sister in Christ. The language that we use in confession matters. So, if you've yelled at your spouse, if you said cruel things to them, if you've not spoken to them in a week, don't say, we're having some marital troubles. If you're entangled in pornography or sexual sin, or you're entangled in adultery. Don't just say, I've been struggling with lust, or I had an affair. If you're guilty of gossip and slander, don't just say, I I should have been more careful with my words. See, we must see our sin with the same horror that God sees it, and not try to present ourselves as less sinful than we truly are. If we do, will be like the Pharisees, who Jesus calls whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. See, a heartfelt confession involves seeing your sin in the same way that God does, owning it, not trying to polish it up as if it is not shameful. So finally, Israel pleads for restoration through God's mercy. Again, God has been repeatedly patient with them, long-suffering and faithful, and so they ask him for forgiveness yet again. Jump ahead to verse 32, and we see this is where Israel begins confessing their own sin. Verse 32 says this, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. See, this is basically a plea for God's mercy to save them from their current oppression. They have rightly experienced much hardship for their sin, but they long for mercy and restoration. And this proves to be a monumental moment in Israel's history as God forgives his people and restores relationship with them. So we see that the Israelites have recalled God's goodness, they've recognized their sin, and they're seeking to be restored by God's mercy as they renew their covenant. So let's consider our last point, God's response to confession. Well, we can summarize God's response to Israel like this. He has faithfully punished sin, yet he has not forsaken them. He has repeatedly offered forgiveness in response to their heartfelt confession. And In a couple of places, they confess that God has been righteous, righteous. Verse 8, God has been righteous in keeping promises. And in verse 33, God has been righteous in judging sin. Do we ever find ourselves questioning God's righteousness? If so, how? Do we question his righteousness 
in keeping his promises and forgiving sin? Or do we question his righteousness in judging sin? See, I suspect most of us are more likely to question God's righteousness in judging sin. We see that God has judged the sin of Israel as well as judging the sin of their enemies. For instance, in verse 11, it says, He cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. So this is referring to the time of the Exodus, where God judged Israel's enemies by killing the firstborn sons of all in Egypt, and then by casting the pursuers into the depths of the Red Sea. In verse 30, it says this, Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Now here, God is also judging Israel at the hands of their wicked enemies. And this verse briefly summarizes the exile, which entailed unimaginable suffering. For the gory details, read through Psalm 79, read through Psalm 137, 2 Kings 25, or Deuteronomy 28. Reading some of this was literally nauseating to me. It was very difficult to read. I do recommend that you read it, but it's not for the faint of heart. And yet, the Israelites whose grandparents, parents, and some personally had experienced these things directly, these most horrific atrocities at the hands of Babylon, they summarized God's judgment upon them in this way, in verse 33. They said, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. See, God's severe judgment of sin, both towards Israel and towards their enemies, should help us see the atrocity and the horror of sin. But our man-centered perspective presumes mercy and questions justice. See, a more appropriate question would have been this. Is God righteous in forgiving sin? Verse 8 says, And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. So when they approached God, after they'd fallen into sin time and time again, with heartfelt confession, God had forgiven them. He had delivered them. And even in this prayer, when they're pleading for mercy, they say in verse 32, Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. In other words, God, haven't you punished us sufficiently? So the answer to that question is on the one hand, yes, he has. In Deuteronomy 30, God had explicitly promised forgiveness when they returned to him, and that's exactly what they're doing. But on the other hand, no, he hasn't punished them sufficiently. See, just a few verses later, after this promise of forgiveness in Deuteronomy, verse Chapter 30, verses 17 through 18, says this. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Yes, God was being faithful to his covenant promise, but on what basis could he make these promises and maintain his righteousness? Didn't he say that the rebellion and sin was deserving of death? Perhaps an illustration will help here. So imagine for a moment that you or a loved one was the victim of a horrific crime. Perhaps you were raped or your mother or your daughter was raped. 
perhaps your best friend was brutally murdered. Now, what if the criminal in court admitted to their guilt, but said they were deeply sorry and they begged for forgiveness and mercy? And then, when the sentencing came back, the judge let them off with community service. Imagine the righteous anger you would feel if that happened, even if you were fighting to forgive this person who had changed your life forever. Would you consider that judge to be righteous? See, the appropriate question to be asking, particularly at this time in history, is not the question we are prone to ask. Israel should not be asking how God can be righteous in judging sin. Rather, it was more appropriate for Israel and for the surrounding nations to be asking, how can God be righteous in forgiving sin? See, couldn't God have been accused of being an unrighteous God? Well, this specific question is addressed in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And before Jesus, it appeared that God had excused sin. And for this, his righteousness was seemingly in question. But the perfect life and the sacrificial death of Jesus demonstrated that God had not excused sin. He had been piling the sins of his people onto Jesus. Jesus paid the penalty for their sin. See, in Romans 3, it says that Jesus' death was a propitiation, which is a big word that basically means that Jesus' death satisfied God's righteous wrath. In a sense, the substitutionary death of Jesus vindicated God's name and his righteousness. So like their father Abraham's, Israel's faith that God would cover their sin was counted to them as righteousness based on what Christ would later accomplish for them. So just as Israel confessed, God is always righteous. He is righteous in judging sin and he is righteous in forgiving sin because he has punished Jesus. But Jesus is not only the propitiation for our sins, he is also the source of living water. See, in Nehemiah's time, God had spoken to his people through his word at the Feast of Booze, turning their hearts back to him. And centuries later, God would again speak to his people at the Feast of Booze, this time through his son, proclaiming how their hearts could be changed forever. For background, the Feast of Booze took place at the end of the dry season. And so the celebration ended with a plea to God to bring rain. Ray Vanderlaan vividly describes the ceremony like this. The end of the ceremony involved a procession of priests accompanied by flutes marching from the temple to the pool of Siloam, which was fed by a spring of living water. One of the priests filled a golden pitcher with water and the procession returned to the temple. The priest carrying the pitcher entered the priest's court through the water gate and as he approached the altar, the crowd silent. And the priest solemnly poured the water into one of the funnels. The people began to chant a psalm. The sound was deafening because of thousands of pilgrims jammed into the temple courts. In this way, they asked God for life-giving rain. After this, the festival ended. The people fell silent, 
took down their booths, and returned home. Now with that in mind, consider the scene in John chapter 7. Verse 2 sets the stage. It says, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Jumping to 37. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So it's likely amidst the silence on this last day of the Feast of Booze when Jesus proclaimed, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. See, for those who trust in Jesus, for those who have come to him, rivers of living water flow from your hearts because Jesus has filled his people with the Holy Spirit. Sadly, the obedience of the Israelites in Nehemiah's day was short-lived. In chapter 13, we will see the very things that they will make an oath to do in chapter 10 have already been broken a mere 12 years later. See, in their own strength, they had failed to obey. But thankfully, we as Christians living after Jesus are under a new and better covenant. God has written the law in our hearts and minds, and we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Through Christ, by the Spirit, the source of living water, we can experience ultimate restoration to God, and God will keep us faithful. So in closing, when Israel fell into sin, they were not forsaken by God. The relationship was restored when they returned with heartfelt confession, and they received God's forgiveness. We too will fall into sin, but God will not forsake us either. Our relationship can be restored when we return to him in faith and repentance, confessing our sins and our wayward hearts. But unlike the Israelites, we as Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. He regularly convicts us of sin so that when we do stumble and fall, which we will, we can immediately confess and repent. So as we labor to build God's city, the church, we must be a people who are being shaped by confession. See, this is how God continually rebuilds us and molds us into the likeness and image of Jesus Christ, his son. And as we are surrounded by a culture that is continually accusing others of wickedness and yet never able to admit their own sin, may we be a light amidst darkness. May we be a people marked by humility, grace, forgiveness, and heartfelt confession. Sojourn by the power of the Spirit, may we be mindful of God's goodness, sensitive to our sin, quick to confess, persevering in obedience, and always rejoicing in the undeserved and unbelievable mercy and forgiveness of our glorious and righteous God. Please pray with me. Merciful God, as we consider your profound goodness, we too wonder how we could be so wicked. Captivate our hearts with your glory. Make us into a humble and confessing people. And by your spirit, 
keep us faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.